Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we uh, discuss contemporary perceptions of Asia and of Asians in the post-pandemic world, with Kimberly K. Huang, Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Chicago. She's author of the award-winning book, Dealing in Desire, Asian Ascendancy, Western Decline, and the Hidden Currencies of Global Sex Work, and has a book forthcoming from Princeton University Press called Playing in the Gray, Offshoring and Foreign Investments in Frontier Markets. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Kimberly Huang. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you for uh, having me on your podcast today. Sure. Great to have you with us. Thanks so so much. So your first book, Dealing in Desire, looks at sex work uh, in the context of, as you say in the uh, subtitle, Asian Ascendancy and Western Decline. But I would say many people uh, would argue that the U.S. at least, and perhaps the West more generally, um, have certain important advantages in the global markets and in the geopolitical comp- competition in the world that shield us from decline. How do we know that the West is declining and Asia is rising? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's one that uh, many people often talk about. I, I think it's polemic and it's part of a debate, but the way that I see it um, is there are there's been a pretty significant shift in the I would say geopolitical order and and global economic order, and so I'll start with the global economic order. Um, when I started the research for dealing in desire in 2005 2006, I wasn't really looking um, for a story of Asian ascendancy or Western decline. It's a, it's a story that I fell stumbled in on as I was collecting data for the research um, for my for the book. And when I think about the data and when I draw on the data from that time, the signals for me was really thinking about where the foreign direct investment was coming into in um, smaller countries within Southeast Asia. Uh, And what I noticed was that I had assumed that most of the foreign investment coming into Vietnam, for example, um, was coming from the United States or Western countries, when in reality it was coming from South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, um, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. And it made me really begin to think about um, this sort of the shift in this global order. And, it, and I would say it took me about four years to publish those words, Asian ascendancy and Western decline. And, it, and now I think more people have have accepted that this has been a sh- that we're seeing a shift here. 
Um, other places where I would say that we're seeing the shift is, um, you know, the World Bank reported that Asia stock markets account for 32% of global market capitalization, which is ahead of the U.S. at 30% and Europe at 25%. And at the same time, developing economies um, are seeing growth rates that are more than double that of mature markets. And so I, I really think that that represents a significant shift um, And and I would say, you know, from where I am situated, like kind of occupying a life between the United States and and Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, one of the things that I and my family lives um, in, a I would say, more rural part of California, which is Bakersfield, California. Um, And there I, I kind of see this lens of the anxieties around the rise of Asia, in particular around China both in Southeast Asia and in, you know, more rural places within the United States. And I think it's something that Americans, when I think about the, you know, um, January 6th insurrection, um, it, it, much of that is, I think, a consequence of many Americans feeling left out of this change in global order. Um, and and a, a change in global order where they're left out of this particular kind of um, you know, economic economic shift. I also think of cryptocurrencies, um, which I've gotten into more recently and thinking about where a lot of that is being driven by third world economies or once quote unquote third world economies. Um, and so when you look at cryptocurrencies in particular, there's this new kind of rhetoric of like, okay, it's particularly when you're following certain kinds of coins being pumped in the market, there's this, this sense on the U.S. side, like, okay, wait until Asia wakes up. When Asia wakes up, all of this is going to start trading and you're going to see a lot more market activity. And so, um, you know, I think those and, – and, and recently, actually, um, you know, President Biden in his, his recent remarks really kind of – I think for the first I – mean, I mean, President Trump – you know, really started to signal this, I think, and captured a lot of American anxieties around the rise of China and the loss of American jobs. But I think President Biden more recently had said, you know, after this conversation with he had with with Xi Jinping, like, we we better watch out because China isn't making all of these investments in technology, in manufacturing and all of these areas that um, this is not something that we could we can no longer just you know, stand on our laurels on and assume that um, that this isn't something that serves as a particular kind of threat to the United States. Right. Um, Interesting. Can, can I intervene to, to yeah, just say sure. a couple of things? I mean, so you, you've kind of referenced two things I really want to explore. I mean, one is the relationship between the United States and China, and the other is between is the relationship between China and, you know, it's near abroad. Uh, one of whose chief representatives, uh, is, you know, the Japanese leader who's in Washington today for the first in-person meeting, I believe, with President Biden since he took office, uh, in-person meeting of a foreign head of state. Um, so those are two different issues, which I think are very important and uh, I'd like to explore with you. Um, so, I mean, the United States has just recently declared in its uh, sort of threat assessment, annual threat assessment, that China is the greatest threat to our, you know, national security now. And Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, has similarly suggested that we're on sort of the cusp of a 
uh, of a Cold War with China. I mean, there's obviously much talk about these kinds of things. And, and as you say, uh, Biden did in this recent speech or in these recent remarks, you know, sort of emphasize the centrality of technology in this competition. But I mean, you know, not so long ago, China was our kind of frenemy, right? I mean, they were sort of uh, the, this notion of Chinerica that Neil Ferguson, uh, you know, articulated. And, you know, it's in certain respects, it's not clear that that's all altogether gone. I mean, um, you know, another author who's been writing about these issues ref- refers, Ryan Haas refers to what he calls competitive interdependence, which sounds a lot less scary than, you know, uh, enemy competitor, you know, those kinds of phrases. So I wonder what you would say about how the United States is thinking about this relationship and whether we're headed in the right direction in that sense. I think it's very hard today to divorce the political sphere from the economic sphere. And this is something that sociologists in particular have and economic sociologists in particular have been talking, have been saying for a long time. I mean, we used to imagine that the U.S. represents a certain kind of Western democracy um, where the political sphere regulates the economic sphere. And China and, and here we, I'm thinking of the Washington consensus versus the Beijing consensus as examples where the Beijing consensus represents a much more top down authoritarian state. Um, but in, in today, I think that in the global order that we live in now, it's very hard to divorce the two. And, the, and what I mean by that is when I look at the, you know, so on the one hand, there's definitely a political rhetoric of, you know, China is a threat to the United States and this Cold War is not going to be a war of a hot war of missiles and whatever. It's a technology war. Um, and on the other hand, when I think about that and, and we think about these recent kind of hearings where, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the U.S. Um, had asked, you know, major sort of leaders in the technology um, industry to, um, you know, speak out about China. So many of them are, were reluctant and extremely hesitant to be critical of China. And that says a lot about the ways in which the political and economic sphere are overlap in both places. So I'm here thinking of big companies that are there, um, like Apple, Facebook, even like there. If you look at sort of, um, you know, Zuckermeyer and, and ma- many of these major leaders, they're very, very, very careful in their um, in their way they speak out, the way that they talk about China. And so uh, it, if. If it was true that the U.S. was a, you know, a leader of the, in the world, I don't think people would speak out with such hesitancy the way they do today. And so on the one hand, it, I, I think that Ryan um, Hass, who you referenced, you know, he I've also read a lot of his stuff, too. And, and I think he is he is right in saying that it's this interdependent relationship and. Um, you know, China's emergence as the sort of global rule maker um, is, I think, what is far more of a threat to the U.S. being a global rule maker. I mean, when I think about the Obama administration and the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership that they that he was working really hard to put together, the, the you know, front page of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership literally stated, if we don't write the rules of the road for the rest of the world, somebody else will. And I think in the background of that somebody else will, it was China. 
Um, and, you know, when President and, and I think under the Obama administration, it was more of a frenemy kind of relationship. And then Trump came into office and kind of fueled those flames that now we're starting to see much more bipartisan um, sort of alliances around this kind of looming threat of China. And what does that mean? And I also will say this, too. I mean, it, it, it affects the academic sphere, right? Like recent, um, you know, when like there are so many academics now that are afraid to, you know, teach classes that critique, you know, that raise critiques around China, because now that could, that is a crime under their new national security law. And so the idea that one country can have a national security law that affects all of us in a way that where people are sort of tiptoeing around and trying to figure out what that means says a lot about, um, you know, where the U.S. is in relation to China right now. Um, and, you know, the other thing I will say, too, in terms of that goes back to and it's hard for me to, to divorce the two parts of the question that you're referring to. But when I think about China's influence in the broader world, it's not just the one belt, one road, but it's all of the sort of loans that China is making. The state, you know, um, Chin Kuan Li has talked about this in her book, her fantastic books, like Specters of Global Capital. And I think she might be someone you would consider having on this podcast who can really go deeper into this. But you know, it, it, there's a difference between private capital making investments in the region and state capital that makes investments in less developed economies and in Africa, various parts of Africa and Southeast Asia. And okay, so when tell, I think so about tell Southeast us about, Asia, tell us about that. I mean, uh, this is obviously another major point I think that people are, you know, debating, discussing, concerned about is. You know, it seems to me uh, historically unprecedented for China to have such significant relations with such distant parts of the world. I mean, of course, there was the Silk Road historically and, you know, uh, Chinese influence in, so to speak, again, this sort of near abroad. But now it's, you know, it's in Africa, it's in Latin America. Um, and, you know, I think there are diverging views about how to perceive this. I mean, obviously, it's driven at some level simply by the need for certain kinds of raw materials and minerals and things like that. Um, but how do you kind of evaluate what China is doing? And I mean, is it a neo-colonial kind of uh, relationship or is it really just kind of debt colonialism? What exactly is it? I think that's a great question, and it's one that's very hard to answer. Ching Kwan Lee would say, um, who's a professor at UCLA, would say it's not a neo-colonial relationship, and she's very, um, you know, clear about that in her her research. I think it's hard. It's hard because, um, you know, there was a there was a informal conversation. There was a sort of um, I was listening to the head of the World Bank speak about you know China in a sort of, in a I would say closed door, you know, informal space. And one of the things that he said that I thought was really powerful is that, you know, when the World Bank um, gives out loans to the rest of developing countries, there's a certain sense that we know where where those loans are, what the loans, how the loans are structured. There's a kind of openness and transparency. And one of the things he says is it's very clear that China is becoming one of the biggest lenders to less developed countries around the world, but we have no way of knowing. There's not an openness around the data. There's not an open sense of transparency. There's, it's very difficult to measure. 
But when I think about the, uh, somebody who's in that position, who's, you know, in, in a, a senior role in the World Bank saying something like that, it is, it is a moment to sort of take, a, a, to take a step back and, and, and kind of think about this with caution, right? What does that mean? Um, you know, is, and, and not to say is Western forms of economic colonialism or neocolonialism better than Chinese forms? I, I, there isn't really an answer for that, but I do think that, um, a lot of different countries in the world, less developed economies, can see themselves as having to figure out how to negotiate relations with both China, I would say not just China, but China, Russia, and the United States, um, and Southeast Asia, which is a region that I focus on in particular, um, you know, it, it very much so has to think about those. You know, it's it, they're getting financing from China, but they're also getting financing from the United States. And so how can both of those funds simultaneously exist in the, in the, in, in these less developed economies? And what I call, I mean, this is getting more, I think a bit too academies, but I, I, what I argue is in, um, an article that I published in the American Sociological Review, which is titled Risky Investments, is that what you start to see are heterogeneous state market relationships that enable it within Southeast Asia that enable for them to simultaneously attract capital from China, but also, you know, kind of make nods to ideas of transparency and democracy and take money from the United, from, from U.S. and private investors, Western private uh, institutional investors from the West is what I would say. So um, that is something that, and the way that I would describe it is that early stage investors come from with for in the region of Southeast Asia come from more developed emerging economies in that region. So, you know, greenfield, brownfield investors that are working directly with state-owned enterprises come from China, Hong Kong, South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, but their idea of an exit strategy are institutional investors who are coming from Western nations or, or, or Japan. And, but that, what that means is that by the time that those Western nations enter the market, they have ex, ex, they expect for local firms to go through a process of professionalizing. That is, you know, having clearer tax structures put in place, putting together a, you know, um, a, a board, you know, a proper board, you know, having bringing in professional tax consultants and, you know, law firms that do this and accounting firms that do this. And their exit strategy are Western investors. And so, when I so when I say so, I think it's true to say that you know, is it really about the declining significance of the West? Ultimately, no, because the West is the final exit for many of these other economies around the world. However, um, do I think that the 21st century may be China's century? It's starting to we're starting it's starting to look that way, um, and. And I think time will tell, you know, which way this turns. And, and, I, and I think it's going to um, require a lot for the U.S. to continue to hold its position. But um, we're starting to see what I also am beginning to feel is, the, the you know, what, what is beginning to look like a, um, an early stage of a financial revolution with the rise of cryptocurrencies, because it means now the U.S. dollar, if cryptocurrencies rise in the way that they are, which is primarily being pumped by China and East and Southeast Asia right now, um, that means that it's really putting a test to the dominance of the U.S. dollar around the world as the primary fiat currency, which all other dollars are pegged to. So I think that there's multiple extremes. On the one end, you you have folks on Wall Street who would say, 
there's no way that the U.S. dollar is going to crumble the way that it has because, you know, you need to have a state, you need to have a military, you need to have, you know, all of these things backing that dollar. And on the other hand, what we're seeing is that doesn't seem like these cryptocurrencies are going anywhere. And many of these countries that did not have faith in their own political institutions and their own financial institutions have leapfrogged local banks and gone straight into um, digital currencies. And and I think of, you know, Vietnam as one example, you know, um, Vietnam just two just two or three days ago, I was reading in the newspaper that two of their big banks just adopted um, a blockchain technology that is um, backed by Ripple XRP. And my first thought in reading those articles was, wow, if if the if Vietnam is doing this, it almost seems like they're just leapfrogging. Um, going from having a whole population of people that are unbanked to being banked on digital currencies rather than being banked, you know, in a in a bank where people are worried about a run on banks. And um, and what it, what makes cryptocurrencies, I think, um, especially frightening, I would say, um, is that it's not like the stock market where you have to have citizenship in order to trade on it. Anybody around the world can be trading on this. And when you watch that market, I, I have a five month old child right now. And when I was um, when she was first. Congratulations. Born, thank you. She was born on um, in November. And I remember the early days of just, you know, um, taking care of her and the early nights when the United States is asleep and. Asia is awake. And I just remember looking at this and watching the, you know, the volume of trades happening and thinking to myself, you know, oh, my goodness, is, you know, should I should Americans be worried the way that Asians, you know, I think of my parents who are refugees from Vietnam and, and I was living in Southeast Asia at the time when there was a run on banks in India. I was in India when there was this currency crisis and in Myanmar when there was at the, in the middle of a currency crisis. And when you live there and you're in it, you, I remember being in India and watching people stand in line around the banks trying to go and cash in. And we're seeing this now in Myanmar with the current, you know, tensions that are happening there. And in those kinds of states where people have very little faith in their political institutions to back the financial institutions, what you're seeing is sort of their locals are leapfrogging, you know, banks as we know it and going straight to digital currencies. And so that that's very nerve wracking because it um, as a to me as an American citizen, I think most people in Asia would say it's our time now. Ride the wave. And, you know, there are many blockchain technology conferences that are being held um, by Binance and um, a number of other platforms in Southeast Asia. And when I look at those kinds of conferences, the, the first thing they all say is Southeast Asia, East and Southeast Asia is leading the kind of rise of these digital currencies. So, you know, it, it, you know, is it highly volatile? Yes. Is it completely speculative? Absolutely. Could it crash tomorrow? 100%. Do I have an answer of which way the world is turning? No, but I think that we're, these are small indicators um, of which way the world tur- is turning. And I will say having, you know, spent a lot of time in Bakersfield, California, where there is literally no industry, there's no economy that's propping up that area. I also feel an enormous sense of empathy for people who feel um, like they have been, who feel outside of the economy, who feel they're not benefiting from this shifting geopolitical order. And I, I think that there's 
there's a reason why it was so easy for President Trump to fan the flames of this anti-China um, rhetoric because many, many people who are who are not part of the coastal elites very much feel outside of, um, you know, outside of this, I would say, one third world, which is the wealthy of the U.S., the wealthy of China, the wealthy of the rest of the world and two thirds world, which makes up everyone else, including poor Americans in the United States. Um, and so, yeah. Interesting. Very, really fascinating. Um, so, I mean, there's the kind of economic side of the China relationship with these other, you know, countries in its near abroad. Um, but I guess uh, I'd be curious what you would say about, you know, China's military role or military uh, dominance in the region. I mean, the United States basically has just reaffirmed a, a defense budget the size of the uh, the Trump defense budget. It's not, you know, the, the shift in administration hasn't made any real dent in, in that. And then, of course, we spend, I don't know, three times as much as everybody else combined or something like that. I mean, an enormous amount of money on our military uh, and even compared to China. But in its neighborhood, China's uh, obviously the big, the big uh, foot, you know. And so, you know, one of the issues that's being discussed today with the with the Japanese prime minister is, you know, precisely the relationship between the United States and this quad group of countries. Um, and, you know, what I read suggested that Japan has to be very concerned, very careful about how it, you know, uh, relates to these to what is kind of in effect a Western or U.S. dominated uh, group of countries relative to China because they're they're so heavily reliant on their trade with China. So I mean, again, it gets back to your point, I guess, about the you know the inseparability of politics and economics in certain respects. Um, but how would you see you know the development also of China's relationship with, with Taiwan? I think that um, from the time that I've spent in Southeast Asia, many of the smaller countries in the region are very nervous. Um, and I think that if you see if, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, um, small countries like Japan, you know, they know that where they're situated and there is a certain tension and nervousness you can feel in the air when you're in those places uh, you know, that what is happening in Hong Kong right now um, might signal what may happen, you know, is it, almost forecasting Ch Taiwan's future, potentially forecasting Singapore's future, potentially forecasting, you know, um, you know, these smaller countries in the region's future. And I, that is, I, I think, very scary to many people in ways that no one, many people don't feel comfortable speaking out and saying so directly. Um, but the other piece of it is that, you know, given sort of the, the location, the physical location of these countries in relation to China, everyone there is afraid of a war, right? Because, um, you know, that will have ripple effects for all of these other smaller countries in, within the region. And so a lot of those smaller countries are, you know, feel like they have to straddle the space in between, um, the United States and China and not just that, Russia as well, right? And so I, when I think about Myanmar right now um, and what's happening in Myanmar, what is really, for me, um, so, so important to pay attention to is, you know, is the United States going to go in and do something? Because if they don't, 
I think it's a signal to China that, you know, um, there are many that feel, you know, because of Myanmar's sort of physical location as this corridor between um, China and India, that there is this informal influence of China um, backing the military regime in Myanmar. And so, you know, it's a question are, is, is Myanmar the version of today, you know, today's version of what Vietnam was, where we're going to see these geopolitical relations pay, play out? Or will the United States determine that Myanmar is just too small of a country, even though it's actually physically quite large, um, to actually risk doing something, right? And, 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 and going in and doing something. And the same is true with Hong Kong in some senses. Um, you know, I think watching sort of what's happening in and and as I was watching what was happening in Hong Kong at the same time that we witnessed that, you know, and much of this is contextual. Right. At the same time, we're witnessing this capital insurrection of January 6th. I can't help but think, OK, the capital insurrection is now going to be a distraction we're now distracted with our own politics and getting our own things together that there's no space anymore to actually think about like how to intervene in how the U.S. might intervene in some of the geopolitics that are happening in other countries around the world. And that is where, I mean, in some ways you could imagine China taking a step back and saying, okay, if the U.S. isn't going to do, you know, it doesn't care, isn't going to do anything, we're going to go in more. And, and the reason why I say that, um, I say that is because when the United States, when President Trump, um, you know, kind of pulled the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, all of those countries renegotiated a similar trade partnership with China. So it's not going away. It doesn't. It's, you know, um, and that's one thing that I have to say, you know, I was living in Southeast Asia at the time when Americans were in the 2016 elections when Americans were really nervous about the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. And I just kept thinking, how is it how has it been that this rhetoric is the rhetoric is, you know, make America great again when actually not and not that I'm, you know, um, kind of a proponent of American sort of forms of neocolonialism, but when actually the TPP was exactly that. And so it's. But somehow the rhetoric got spun where it was like, bring jobs back to America, make America great again. And this sense of protectionism without a recognition that our economies are so deeply intertwined at this point. Um, and, and I will say to this, too, and which I say when I give talks at other places, that even when Trump pulled out of the TPP, you know, the first um, Southeast Asian president to make a visit to the United States was from Vietnam, even though the U.S. had longer strategic relations with the Philippines and, and Thailand. And President Trump made a, made multiple visits to Vietnam. Um, and so it's, it, it, you know, if that small country is a place where he's paying attention to, even on the sort of far right, it says something about the sort of looming threat of China in the background in terms of their economic and geopolitical dominance um, in that region of the world. Right. I mean, I'm sh- I think it's fair to say there were many contradictions of Trump's foreign and other policies. Right. Um, and much incoherence, I suppose. But um, so you've referenced a couple times now the January 6th Capitol Hill riots or whatever exactly they were. Um, and, you know, our relationship with, uh, you know, China and elsewhere. I mean, I think, you know, the Trump presidency was seen in China and in Russia as, you know, a great sort of uh, advantage for them, really. 
because the United States mm-hmm. was so preoccupied with itself and its own problems, and mm-hmm. that all got worse after George George Floyd was killed, and uh, the streets were in flames, or at least you know in an uproar. And uh, you know, I think the Chinese and, and Russian leaderships look at this and say, "This is great for us because you know they're too busy with their own problems mm-hmm. to really do anything with the rest of the world." Uh, but more recently, we've had another uh, unfortunate, uh, tragic, you know, incident in Atlanta that involved, you know, six Asian or Asian American women victims. Um, and I'm sort of curious, you know, how that is perceived and thought about in Southeast Asia uh, or in Asia more generally. I mean, the pl- parts of Asia that you know well. I mean, is this the sort of thing where people say, uh, you know, the place is uncivilized and dangerous and we're not going to go there anymore. Or is the, the attraction for those for whom it's an attraction, you know, is that just still too overwhelming and won't really make any difference in terms of, you know, how they think about possible, you know, migration or immigration here? I, you know, that's a really great question. And I think it's important to answer it in two parts. I think that for the global elite, and that's a group of people that I've been studying for my second book, um, which are sort of ultra high net worth individuals and high net worth individuals globally. So from China and Southeast Asia, um, I don't see them as um, as concerned about, um, you know, coming to the United States or spending time in the United States because the parts of the United States that they spend time in are parts are parts of the um, you know, it's, in many ways, it's sort of like this, you know, a, a kind of um, a, a, like a, a protected version of the U.S. that they enter. And so they don't see a lot of what is happening quite literally on the streets. Um, I will say that the, the, the rise in violence against elderly um, Chinese Americans, you know, in particular has Asian Americans in particular has. Um, really given people a lot of pause and, and, and concern. Um, and that has made I, I, what we're starting to see is a decline in Chinese investment in the U.S., which is for better or for worse. I think about under the Obama administration and, and the EB5 visa program, you know, the real estate market in the United States was very much propped up by China, Chinese investors. And Many of those investors under the Trump administration have pulled their money out. And so we're starting to see um, a sense of, you know, a stagnation in real estate property prices and values, which in some ways you could say is good for Americans because it makes the market more affordable where you don't have just cash buyers coming in, particularly in California. Right. Um, Going it flooding the market. But and and the other thing I will say, just from an academic side of things, um, there was a time when. American universities really tr- did a lot to try to attract international students, particularly those from China, because they were paying out-of-state tuition. They were paying much higher tuition dollars. And I, I remember traveling to give talks at many of these kind of places in middle middle parts of America, like Idaho and Iowa and, um, you know, Kentucky, where you would see a huge body of um, student international students from China and universities doing a lot to cater to them. Now, today, when I speak with parents about the possibility of sending their child abroad, the United States is one of the fewer countries that they're interested in and they're looking towards 
um, you know, uh, Europe, um, Australia, and I would even say not that, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong, National University of Singapore has been rising in their ranks. And Hong Kong um, University has also been rising in their ranks as, you know, become, you know, elite, international, recognizable universities. And, and, and the, the thing that most of those parents cite is, one, sort of the growing anti-Asian um, sentiments, but the other is gun violence in the United States. Um, and I hear many parents say to me that, you know, I don't want to send my kid there because the, the, the thought of them being um, shot and killed from some kind of mass shooting or some kind of gun violence situation is very, very, very nerve wracking. And um, that is surprising to me, given, you know, um, given that the U.S. used to be a leader, I mean, very much, I would say, a leader in higher education. And everybody, elites and non-elites from around the world, were sending their kids to be educated in American universities. That was once seen as a prestigious thing. And I think we're starting to see the declining significance of that even um, across the board. Just anecdotally, I mean, uh, my dissertation 30 plus years ago was about the collapse of communism in East Germany. And I got to know one of the leading dissidents in the country who had spent time in the GDR's jails. She got herself an invitation to a, a meeting in Detroit and she was terrified about going. Because she's, you know, she saw the United States as this place that was just awash in guns, which of course it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, you know, exactly a novel perception, of course, uh, and on, on, you know, a sad truth, but the reality is that that's the reality. Um, so I think you've been kind of uh, hinting at this a little bit throughout your remarks, but uh, I did want to ask you, I don't exactly know where it stands, but I did want to ask you what you've been finding in this book that you're finishing or near finished, or I'm not exactly sure where it's at, uh, but it has to do, as you say, with uh, foreign investment in Southeast Asia. So I'd be interested to know, you know, what you've been finding. What, 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 what should we know about what's going on in the region? Yeah, so the book, um, so the book is titled Playing in the Gray, Offshoring and Foreign Investment in Frontier Markets. And, um, when I started the research for the book, I was really interested in a question of how do U.S. and Chinese investors compete in the region, um, in Southeast Asia? And what I was really curious at the time, um, about was sort of how, particularly how do U.S. investors who are constrained by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act compete with investors from other parts of the world who don't have those same foreign bribery laws that they have to adhere to. And when I got there um, to carry out the interview, I've interviewed over 300 um, individuals, and these are sort of high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, and the financial professionals that manage their money. So bankers, lawyers, company secretaries, accountants, um, so you know, so on and so forth, financial, you know, uh, private wealth managers. Um, you know, it's what I realized is that in those economies, um, the investment is not, it doesn't it's not foreign direct investment the way we imagine it, which. So if you there's a there's a pie chart in my first book where I look at foreign direct investment going from nation A to nation B. So the United States to Vietnam, you know, um, Hong Kong to Vietnam. And what I missed when I was doing that research was that. Actually, 30% of it comes through offshore um, sites, 
which are Hong Kong, Singapore, and the British Virgin Islands. So when you look at that pie chart, I think I have a figure something like 3% of foreign direct investment going into Vietnam is coming from China and 8% is coming to the United States. Well, what I, what I, what I miss and what I think a lot, a lot of economists miss when you're just solely looking at these statistics is actually that there is this wide offshore structure where um, investment goes to Ch- Hong Kong or Singapore, which are these offshore sites that before they're invested onshore in Vietnam or Myanmar. And that's important because a U.S. investment is masked as a Singaporean investment that's actually going to Vietnam. And the, and what's important about that is that it's modeled after, um, you know, this, this kind of offshore structure and web is very much modeled after what large American corporations have been doing for a long time, like Apple, Google. We've, we've seen a lot of these offshore structures being critiqued um, in the U.S. where uh, many of those companies engage in transfer pricing practices where they book assets offshore in low tax jurisdictions and liabilities onshore in high tax jurisdictions. And so um, the book is sort of looking at the ways in which this um, offshore, you know, economy, I think, is a parallel economy to what we imagine as, um, uh, you know, foreign investment as going, you know, through a, a nation state's lens or through a global city's lens where we imagine that capital is concentrated in any one of these major global cities, New York, London, Tokyo, when actually the ownership of capital is set up through these through this very complex web where ultra high net worth individuals are able to choose and shift their legal jurisdictions. Um, and that is something that I think affects, you know, affects the whole world in, in a sense that, you know, really, really, uh, you know, rich people can choose their cha- tax jurisdictions. And that's something that we um, and and I, what I argue in the book is it's a bipartisan problem. Like we see this under both the Trump administration, under the Obama administration and under the Biden administration. No one is really willing to um, kind of, uh, you know, crack down on this in part because there's no supranational organization that can crack down on this. So you have people like Gabriel Zuckman, who's arguing that we should have some kind of global wealth registry. And my part of me is thinking, how could that possibly exist when the political sphere enables this this sort of economic um, uh, you know web to exist in the first place. It's it's as it's like asking the regulators to regulate themselves. Sure. Do you see the Biden administration's move to try to you know limit these uh, undercut these offshore tax havens as uh, I you think know, moving in this direction at all? Is, I mean, I I. I I feel like it's a nudge in the direction, but it's not significant in the sense that and the reason why I say that is because it's not the case that the wealthy only come from the United States and Europe. If you look at, you know, any list now, Forbes list, a lot of these lists of the ultra wealthy, many of them there we have we have new wealth from China, Russia, the Middle East, um, and all of those people don't have to adhere to those laws. And so, um, and so, you know, one of the things I will say is when I went, when I was living in Southeast Asia and going to, um, some of these banks that helped, you know, that open up offshore, bankers that open up offshore bank accounts, the first thing they'll ask is, do you hold a U.S. passport? And, and if the answer is yes, you, they have to go through this whole, um, due diligence process of, you know, know your client, which is 
KYC is the acronym that they refer to it. And you have to fill out all this documentation and, you know, um, you know, show it on your taxes in the U.S. But if you're not a U.S. citizen, the paperwork is quite thin. You don't have to adhere to any of that. And if you look at Switzerland and Hong Kong and Hong Kong and Singapore, which are just offshoots of, you know, the old sort of Swiss model, um, they can choose now to turn away U.S. Um, clients because there are there's enough capital in less developed economies like Vietnam, for example, um, that who they can bank. And so a lot of those bankers have just turned away U.S. clients and have are now banking the rest of the world. And that is what's um, a bit nerve wracking when I when I think about sort of this shifting geopolitical order, too. It's also a shift in elites and around the world who are using old sort of U.S. kind of model, offshore models um, that were developed, that were, you know, used by big multinational corporations and and are using that. Um, and well, so while the U.S. might be regulating and cracking down on it, other countries are not. And so and that's that, I think that's a big tension. Right. Fascinating. Well, obviously, there's a lot to be done on that particular front. Uh, but uh, we're out of time, and I want to thank uh, Kimberly Huang for sharing her insights about Asia and Asians in the world today. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for our show. This is John Torpy saying thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.